I want us to look at um, the closing verses of the seven letters of Christ to his churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And we're going to get there in a moment, um, but just give me a second. I wonder if you have ever, in, in the world of emails, have you, have you ever collected handwritten letters? Uh, my wife and I have. She has a box with some of our early love letters back and forth from 32-ish years ago. I remember digging around in an old attic in a house uh, that I was renting, so I really had no business being in the attic. I, I was in college and rented this house. And I, so I thought, I wonder what's in the attic. And, um, and I went up there, and there was a box, and there was old letters from, like, World War II, letters home. Maybe you have love letters from your early days of your marriage. Maybe you have uh, letters from a grandparent or a great-grandparent that went to war and wrote letters home to the family. Now, if you found or if you're kind of going back and looking at those old letters and they're fascinating... If you're reading through those letters and you get to the, toward the end and you turn the page and you realize you're actually missing the last page of the letter, that it just feels really incomplete, doesn't it? I mean, so questions have to come to your mind. What more was said? I mean, how did they, how did they end the letter? What am I missing? Was it important? In your Bibles, you have... Seven unique letters from the Lord Jesus Christ. Unique in the sense that there there really isn't any portion of Scripture quite like this. Seven letters that Christ dictated to John from Christ's throne to be given to the churches, to us. It is really a precious treasure for us that we have these letters 2,000 years later. And as we're looking over them, I have a question for you as a church. I have a question for you as individuals. Do you have the final page of these seven letters? Do you have the final pages? Whenever a new Bible translation comes out, I noticed that this morning one of you read from the King James and one read from the ESV, right? Now I'm, I'm reading from the New American Standard. So we have a lot of Bible translations. But when a new one comes out, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm naturally suspicious, all right? And so I'm like, I, I don't know. I've just got to where I really like the New American Standard, or I used to preach from the New King James, or I grew up reading the King James. So I'm a little suspicious. So you, nowadays you just Google it, don't you? You, you want to hear what experts are saying about the translation. What if a new translation came out, and you Googled it, and this is what you read? Great translation, really accurate to the original Hebrew and Greek, and yet very readable. The only thing that bothers me is it leaves out the last section of every letter of Christ to the church in Revelation. Would anybody buy it? Can, can you imagine what your pastor would think if you came up and said to him, actually, pastor, my Bible doesn't contain any of those verses. Now, I, I don't think any of us would do that. We wouldn't buy a Bible that lacks the final verses of each of the letters. But so here's my question. In practice, so not in, not in theology or in concept, but in practice, do you have all the pages, the final pages of all the letters in Revelation? 
Maybe I could ask it this way. If your Bible did lack the last few verses of each of the seven letters, would your church look any differently? Would your, would your marriage look any differently? Would you look any differently if your Bible actually didn't contain the last page of each letter from Christ? Today, I want us to make sure that we have all the pages of all seven letters in practice. Now, each of the letters ends in exactly the same way, except the wording is a little different, all right? So each letter ends with a promise from Christ to the same kind of person, to the overcomer. Now, that's really important, and that's what we're going to be spending our time on this morning, because of all the things that Christ could use to describe a Christian, I mean, think of them. There's Christian, there's follower, there's believer or repenter, there's saint, there's elect one, predestined, loved from eternity, set apart. Of all the phrases or all the descriptions that Christ could have given of a Christian, in these letters, he only uses one of the many, and he uses it repeatedly. Every letter ends written to the same person, to him or her who overcomes. Now, each letter ends with a promise written to the overcomer, and the promise is actually the same in every letter, though Christ uses different ways to describe it. So basically, the promise is speaking of an, of an eternity with Christ, but these different phrases, it's like Christ holds up the promise of eternity, and he turns it in front of our eyes, seven different directions, so that we can see it from all these perspectives. Now, if you have your Bible, let's look at these. We're starting in chapter 2 of Revelation. We're going to read verse 7, and then we're just going to read just the ending portions of each letter. So stick with me, we'll, we'll be hopping around just a little. Revelation 2, verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Chapter 2, verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Chapter 2, verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Verse 26 of chapter 2. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. Chapter 3, verse 5. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God 
and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Verse 21 of chapter 3, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. What I want us to consider this morning is really pretty simple, kind of just two major points. The first major point is this. I want us to consider the enormous significance of the implication of the final page of each of these letters, these final verses. And then I want to reinforce that implication with, uh, a, a, with texts from all around the scripture. All right, so what does this mean for the believer? And do we see this in other parts of the Bible? So first, the significance, the significant implication here is very clear. Only one type of person in a church will ever receive the promises of Christ of eternal life. It does not matter how careful we are with our Bibles when we open them. It doesn't matter how confessional your church is, uh, you know, 1689. It doesn't matter how many catechisms you've studied. It doesn't matter how reformed you are. It is human nature for every church member to be tempted to de-emphasize passages that don't seem to fit with what you think things ought to be like or to adjust them to fit your experience. The promises at the end of these letters, as sweet as they are, can in many ways be difficult for us. They can be difficult to understand. For example, immediately a question comes to my mind, is Christ saying that those that don't overcome will lose their salvation? That would be really difficult to, 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 uh, you know, to verify from any other part of Scripture. But they can also be difficult to embrace and to apply. The head of this church and the head of every church throughout the centuries has only made these promises to one type of person. So that means it does not matter what doctrine you profess. It does not matter what books you've read and old writers you admire. It does not matter how much you love this church and its pastor. It does not matter how long you've been in this church if you do not overcome, you will not receive eternal life from Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ has not made one exception to these promises in 2,000 years, and not one of us will be the first exception. Now, I, I guess that shouldn't surprise us, even though it does, because we find this throughout the entire Bible. Let me give you just a couple of samples. In Colossians 1, verse 22 and 23, after describing the wonders of the gospel and then taking us to the highest point of perhaps of all of Paul's writings, particularly in Colossians, where he just lays before us these, this sevenfold description of the preeminence of Christ, he then says this, He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If, if, if indeed 
you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, and chapter 3, verse 14, he writes this, But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. There's so many we couldn't read them all, but let me give you one more. Revelation 21 at the very end of our Bibles, verse 6 and 7. Then he said to me, Christ says to John, it is done I am the Alpha and the Omega. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Is this talking about a works-based salvation? Is it talking about a salvation that maybe is a mixture? Part Christ to get you going, and part you to make sure you end well. John Wesley thought that. In the 1700s, in the midst of what the British people call the evangelical revival, which we call the Great Awakening, John Wesley, George Whitfield, and a number of other men were preaching. Earnest believers, I mean, there's a lot about John Wesley's theology that I could not agree with. Uh, If I were back then, I'd definitely go to George's church, not John's church, all right? But I, I think it would be wrong to look at Wesley and say, well, you know, he didn't love the Lord. He didn't get it all right. John Wesley in the 1740s, this is about 10 years after the beginning of the Great Awakening, Wesley calls together his preachers in the annual gathering of Wesleyan preachers. So he has this, you know, few score of preachers, and they meet together for a number of days of prayer and Bible study. And during this time, John Wesley said, I think it was 1743, he writes, and he was very organized, so he wrote everything down. He writes down in his journal, met with the men. And warned them that we lacked the holiness that we once had. Where is the fervor, he asked. And then he reminds them, my brother Charles and I and our friend George Whitfield, when, we, when the revival first started, we fasted twice a week, two days a week, pleading with the Lord to come. And they did that through their whole life. Where is anyone here that does that? And he noticed this kind of this dropping off, this flagging of zeal. But here's where Wesley went wrong. He said this, the problem with our lack of earnestness is we've gotten too Calvinistic. So he rethought the doctrine of justification by faith alone, through Christ alone. And this is what Wesley came up with. We are justified by faith presently, by faith alone, looking to Christ. But ultimately, there is a second part two parts to justification, present and future. In the future, he said, if you don't add good works, you'll lose it. Now, I think John Wesley meant well, but he blew it in his, in his cure was worse than the disease. He misunderstood the doctrine of justification. 
Is that what Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are teaching? Well, no. Well, let's back up and get a, a bigger picture now and try to kind of understand this biblical theology of conflict and of overcoming. We could call it a theology of war. We could call it a theology of triumph. Now, when we talk about a theology of war, I certainly do not mean a geopolitical war. We have nothing to do with those who, whether at the voting box or at the end of a gun, feel that we can convert our world. We have laid aside the earth's cleverness and embraced the simplicity of the gospel and the pattern of the apostles. And it's through that that Christ will conquer. But we're talking about those enemies that we have, sin, Satan, and this world system. Or the way they manifest themselves in your own soul. Pride. Selfishness. Unbelief. Every Christian must take up arms against those enemies that live within your own soul as well as those external enemies that are constantly pressuring us back into the old mold. Well, let me just give you some some kind of a, a biblical overview of this theology of a spiritual war. First of all, where does it start? Well, we know where it starts. Genesis 3. Adam and Eve choose to believe a liar rather than to believe our creator. And God then judges. But do you notice that in the judgment... Found in chapter 3 of Genesis, there is mercy coming alongside judgment. That wonderful earliest mention of hope, Genesis 3.15. This is what God says. Now he's speaking to Satan, to the serpent. And in judging the serpent, he mentions mercy for humanity, even before he judges humanity. He says this, and I will put enmity, strife, between you, Satan, And the woman, between your seed and her seed, and her seed speaks of Christ, he, her seed, the Messiah, will bruise or crush your your head, and you will bruise his heel. What a wonderful picture of what Christ did. But did you notice in that, that one of the mercies shown is not just that a Messiah would come, but that God, in judging Satan, declared an unending conflict between Christ and Satan, between Christ's people united to him and the unbeliever, between the believer and Satan, the Christian can still sin. Sadly, we can still wake up and present this body as an instrument of unrighteousness, Paul says in Romans 6. But you, because of Genesis 3.15... If you're Christ's, you can never again be the friend of the enemy. And he will never be your friend. God has, Samuel Rutherford said in the 1600s from a Scottish prison, God has, in saving you, brought you into an unending war with Satan and sin, which can have no ceasefire in this life. Well, that's where it starts. But it's more than that. Think about conversion. In Psalm 110, that wonderful Old Testament psalm that is quoted more times than any other psalm, more times than any other scripture in the New Testament. In verse 3, it describes the army of the, of the Messiah. And it says this, 
Your people, Christ's people, will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array. Many chapters later in Revelation 19, verse 11, we read about the same people. Listen to this. We have a picture of Christ coming in war and his people coming with him. It says this, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with the robe dipped in blood. And by the way, that is the blood of his enemies. And his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. In the day of your power, God says to the Messiah, your people will volunteer. Nobody joins the army of Christ by being drafted. I mean, I know we understand that God is sovereign, and God wonderfully works in the soul to make his son irresistible to us. But we do freely give ourselves to Christ when he works in us. Every Christian freely gives himself to this king. And in doing so, every Christian volunteers for the army. It would be really easy to think that being adopted into the highest royal family ever, the family of God, and being, being a follower of the greatest captain of war ever, Jesus Christ, would probably equate to you and I never having to do military service. I mean, after all, Christ's battles are renowned. I mean, every time he takes the field of battle, he lays the enemy at his feet. Colossians 2, where Christ publicly, mockingly triumphs over the enemy, rising from the dead after the cross. What's there left for us to do? And so we think, well, we're exempt because we're in the royal family. One of my daughters, um, it's the daughter that came with us who's not feeling well, which is why we'll have to go back um, to uh, Merv's, uh, to Twin, Twin Creek's retreat center to see if she's doing okay. One of our daughters is just the biggest, you know, lover of the royal family. So whether I want it or not, I get Instagram updates on everything that's happening with Megan and Kate. And like, these are just common names now in my house, all right? I was reading recently uh, about the Queen of England, who I actually do quite admire. I I want her to be the next president, all right? But anyway, I met a Scottish friend, a preacher, and he got up and he said, make America Great Britain again, all right? So right now I'm okay with that, you know? Do you know that Queen Elizabeth, in World War II, she was very young, but she was old enough to serve in the army. Do you know that she served in the army? She got special permission from her father not to be exempted. Now, all the boys in the royal family, all of them are expected to serve in the armed forces. So being part of the royal family doesn't exempt you. It means you've got to go do it. But Elizabeth got special permission from her father. And she worked in the, let me make sure I get this right. Let me see if I can find this. She worked in the, oh, I've lost it. Ah, here it is, the Auxiliary Territorial Service. Now, what that is, is this. She drove army trucks and was an army truck mechanic. 
in the family of God. Adoption into his family, being spiritual royalty, never exempts us from military service. It guarantees it. Let me give you a third confirmation about this war. When Paul deals with the theme of battle in Ephesians 6, if you have your Bibles, turn there. When Paul deals with that, he draws, he, he explains that every part of the Christian life has lived on a battlefield. And there is really a very important question for us when it comes to verse 10 of chapter 6. I want you to look at there because uh, there's just one, really one word I want you to notice. Verse 10 Ephesians 6, in the New American Standard, it starts this way. Finally. Finally. How do you interpret that word? There's a couple of ways. Here's one way. All right, I'm going to give you the ways I disagree with first. Paul, in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, in chapter 6, 1 through 9, Paul's dealing with all these important things. And then in chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says, okay, kind of as a PS or uh, just as kind of an appendix at the end of the letter. Oh, by the way, you are in the middle of a war and you're going to have to get this armor from Christ. So it's kind of a, just a concluding statement, not directly connected with anything that went before. Do you see it as the final application? If you remember, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is primarily doctrine and teaching and 4, 5, and 6 is primarily living, right thinking, right living. So we have all these statements in chapters four, five, and six, how to live in the world, how to live in the church, how to live at work, how to live in your marriage, how to live between parents and children. Chapter six, verse nine, masters and slaves or employers and employees. Chapter six, verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord. Is it simply the last of many applications? Here's what I think it is. I think verse 10 embraces all that went before it. And it's as if Paul has you in a classroom and he's run through the doctrine and then he's explained how that will change the way we live. And then he says, we're finished now. Now I need to lead you out of the room, but you need to follow me through a very particular door. And he leads us through the doorway of verse 10 and written over the doorway is be strong in the Lord because you're going to have to do all of this on a battlefield. Think of it. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, every doctrine in those chapters are doctrines that you as a Christian are required to understand and to to live on, to believe, while constantly surrounded by enemies. So every doctrine really is custom made for a battlefield. And then chapters 3, 4, uh, sorry, 4, 5, and 6 through verse 9 Every duty that Paul lays on the Christian has to be accomplished while living on the front lines. Every stage, every aspect of the Christian life is lived on a battlefield. Every event in your life has been lived on a battlefield. The birth of every child in this church, the exchange of every marriage vow, the visit to every hospital or graveside, Every prayer meeting, every Bible study, every sermon, every fellowship meal has been had on a battlefield. When we have earthly battlefields, we, our, our government often you know, establishes a protected you know, national 
memorial. Like, so this is a battlefield site. So there's a big plaque there explaining the battlefield. We have quite a few of these from the Civil War down south. And you would not be allowed to come up to this piece of property and say, it's a beautiful place. I think I'll just build my house here. Knock the memorial off and build a house there. I mean, you're not allowed to do that. It's a protected spot. So let me ask you, is this church building built on a battlefield memorial? Probably not. But this spiritual church is built on a battlefield. Your kitchen was built on a battlefield. Your children's bedrooms are all on a battlefield. Your bedroom, your living room. And it goes deeper than that. The battle is in the soul. Everywhere you go, there's the battle. Now, we are, we are duty-bound to avoid every unnecessary temptation. But no matter how careful you are, the battle's on the inside, isn't it? Every stage of life is lived on a battlefield. Who's the youngest Christian in this church? You don't have to tell me, but is it a 10-year-old? Is it a, is it a 12-year-old? Is it a 13-year-old? The youngest person you've baptized. That child has been brought onto a battlefield. And they will have to love and follow Jesus Christ on a battlefield. There is no minimum age. They cannot say to the enemy, don't attack me until I'm 18. Who's the oldest Christian in this church? I mean, you're not a very old church, are you? What if you're in your 70s? What if you were in your 80s, 90s? There is no retirement age in this army. You cannot say to Satan, I am now 80, and so you no longer can attack me. In every age of every church. We like to think that certain centuries in church history are less of a battlefield than the one that you live in. It is a lie. And it is a lie that every century has been told. We look at the Great Awakening. We look at the Reformation. You know, we look at the good old days and we say, man, I wish I lived back then. It was easier then. It's a lie. Every Christian has lived on a battlefield in every age. The militant church of Christ on earth is made up exclusively of people who are believing and obeying on a battlefield, and all the victorious church of Christ in heaven is made up exclusively of people who believed and obeyed and overcame. Another evidence of this battlefield is found in the letters themselves. Go back to Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Let me just quickly mention some things. These are New Testament churches. The apostle John is still alive. If ever there was a time that I'm tempted to think, if only I could have lived then, it's the New Testament, isn't it? To have seen Christ, to have walked with him, to have just listened to his human voice, to have been with the disciples, to sit down with Paul or John or James or Peter. Here are these people in these churches, the church of Ephesus. Paul plants it. Timothy pastors it. John pastors it. Christ writes a letter to it, and they're on a battlefield. In Ephesus, there's a cooling love. In Smyrna, there's persecution. In Pergamos, there's friendship with the world that's creeping in. In Thyatira, there's the cunning lies coming from within itself, people inside. Liars within the church leading people to a self-indulgent Christianity. In Sardis, people have fallen asleep. And now they're going to have to wake themselves. 
In Philadelphia, things are going pretty well, but they had to endure in the middle of a culture where their church was small and the task seemed impossibly large. And you know that in Laodicea, they had to repent of being so self-satisfied at their spiritual success. The pronouns in the original Greek help us. You can see it in the English. It just doesn't jump out as, as clearly. In each letter... The pronouns are plural, okay, talking to the church. I know your good works. I know your faithfulness. I know that you can't stand heretics, plural, okay? I know that all of you. Then when he comes to the application, let him who has ears to hear, he who overcomes in each letter, the application is in the singular, You belong to a church that loves the Lord. You belong to a church where the pastor loves the Lord. Your pastor is being careful. I mean, that really is a a sweet privilege today. But it doesn't matter how good your church is. It is the singular pronoun in these letters that ought to haunt us. It's not how my family is. It's not how my church is or my small group. God, I must hear what you have to say to the church I must hold fast until the end. I must, by grace, overcome. Every believer will reach the finish line without exception. But they will reach the finish line having pressed through innumerable enemies. Do you remember the little picture in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress? Christian, uh, Pilgrim goes through the gate, sees the cross, the burden falls off, and the first place that the path takes him is to interpreter's house. Now, interpreter, is, in, in a sense, is a picture of an older believer that gives Christian a series of scenes. He sees these scenes in this house, and each scene teaches him things he'll need if he's going to stay, stay the course. One of the scenes, he walks outside, and there's this great palace, And up at the top of the palace, there are all these people dressed in golden clothing, full of joy, so joyful that they sing. It's a picture of the believers who have finished the race. And he needs to see that at the beginning. You know, you need to know that there's hope. Now, why and outside of the palace, there's a giant crowd of people that would like to go into the palace and be one of those people. Why haven't they entered? It's a little confusing. He looks over on the side, and there's a man sitting at a desk with a pen and a book. And he says, if you want to enter, come, let's put your name down here, and then you can enter. But to enter in front of the gate or in front of the palace doors is, an, is a group of armed men. And anyone who tries to enter is attacked by these men and repelled. And so people see the armed men, and they back up. And you, know, you, can, you can imagine the scene, everyone mumbling to their friend, I'd love to be in there, but I, I, I can't handle that. I couldn't push through that. Then one man comes, a brave-hearted man, and he says, put my name down. And he puts his helmet on and picks up his shield and a sword. And Bunyan says he charges into those men, and they beat him back. And he charges in again, and he gives and receives many blows, but he will not stop. And he finally wins through that company of men, enters into the palace, and the next scene shows him clothed in gold, singing the same songs. 
quite a wonderful picture of the Christian life. We will reach the end, but you will press through countless enemies. Now, let's just stop and ask this question. What about salvation through grace alone? By grace alone, through Christ alone. Does this in any way undermine that? And the simple answer is no. It is essential to grace, but it is not meritorious. So it's essential to the Christian life, but not meritorious. Here's what I mean. No amount of earnest fighting against the temptations in your heart will ever pay, will ever pay for one hour's treason that characterized your life before you were a Christian. You used to fight in the other army. And you'll never be able to pay for that with a lifetime of service. Only God could pay for that shameful debt. But having been bought by God and freed from that horrible shame, how would you not take up arms on behalf of Christ? It is essential. It is essential to the nature of your rescue that you must overcome. Why? Well, it depends on how you define grace. Let me ask you just simple questions. Do you think of grace? Now, I know that we would not say this. I mean, when people ask you to define grace, how do you define it? Like, there's that acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's not bad. You know, the undeserved favor of the Lord. God's love to the unlovely, his strength to the weak. I've heard a lot of definitions. But I'm talking about a practical definition. Do you think of grace as a mule, as a donkey, that will carry you and your favorite sins together to heaven? If you said, well, if we were under works, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to get away with that. But I'm under grace. And so grace is a mule. It carries me and my few favorite sins. Do you think of grace as a great, big, soft, downy pillow? That on the Christian journey, when it gets really hard, grace means anytime you want to, since you're not being saved by works, you can go ahead and take a nap. In fact, you don't actually have to travel at all. I once visited a church when we first came back from the UK. My wife and I went to a church, very big, um, Baptist church. And we went to a Sunday school class for young couples. Back then we were young, all right? And um, this young couple class was bigger than your church. You know, it was massive. And the teacher was a son of a pastor. And uh, he was a nice guy. And so he's there, he's writing, he's writing on the whiteboard, and he draws a ball diamond, baseball. And he said, home plate, that's where we all start. Or, no, well, that's where we're all headed, you know. Heaven is home plate. I, I can't even remember his illustration. It was so bad. But I do remember this. First base, he put the letter B. That's believing Jesus. All right? And he said, now some of you only go to first base. But don't worry, you'll still get to heaven. Second base, L, lordship. Some of you go a little further and let Jesus be the Lord. And then this is where it got really weird. He said, third base, obedience. I'm thinking, what, what happened to lordship? But anyway, in spite of the inconsistencies... There is something about the nature of grace that makes that diagram impossible. No believer stops with belief. Grace doesn't provide a pillow. Grace 
enables. Grace quickens. Grace energizes. Grace, Paul says in Philippians 2, God is at work in you both to desire and to do his good pleasure. The grace of Christ in you is so effective that it does more than wash you. It puts in your heart an unbearable longing to be conformed to Christ. And then it enables you to be conformed to Christ. Sometimes you may feel like that you're a Christian that is doing this all by yourself. I just remind myself of Samuel in the days of Saul. Saul is king. He doesn't obey the Lord. He doesn't wipe out the people you're supposed to wipe out. In fact, he preserves a lot of their livestock, and he also preserves their king. Do you remember his name? Agag. Not a nice name. I've never met another person named Agag. Agag was supposed to be put to death. God's command. Saul doesn't put him to death. So they're having a big royal get-together. All the princes and nobles are there with King Saul. And here's Agag, the king of the foreign country that was just defeated. But Agag's been spared. And they're all there together. And you can just imagine the, you know, the, the unspoken, perhaps, agreement. Let's let bygones be bygones. We're, we're not going to kill you, Agag. Okay? The preacher shows up. Samuel, and he sees Agag has not been dealt with. And God commanded Agag to be put to death. And Samuel, how old is he? I don't know. I don't imagine he's 20. I don't imagine he's very skilled as a soldier. I don't think it's a Hollywood movie kind of thing. Samuel, perhaps as an older man, goes over to the nearest soldier, takes his sword out, walks over in front of everybody, and hacks Agag to death. Can you imagine the scene, the screams, the shock on the Israelites' faces? But nobody's going to do anything because it is Samuel after all. As Agag is slowly, inefficiently hacked to death because God commanded it to be so. If you are the only person in your church that is concerned about the sin that's plaguing you and you have to hack it to death all by yourself, then do it. Grace enables us. Now, I want to give two warnings. First, I've already said that this in no way earns our salvation. It is essential because grace within us will not let us stop short. But second warning, do not let the ferocity and the horror of spiritual war unnerve you. We think of spiritual war, in a, in a, you know, at times in a very romantic way, as if it's not like physical war. You know, I, I guess we think of physical war, romanticize it too. I remember reading the uh, biography of the missionary to India, Amy Carmichael, and she said this. She said, the only wars that are, you know, that are glorious and exciting are the ones in the theater. Real war is blood and cost. Think about the cost and the horror of real war. It's everything. And people are dying. And there's these shocking images that you would never be able to forget. Some of you have been there. And they haunt you the rest of your life. 
Do you think that this spiritual war is like a, a very polite Christian social? It's no less violent. You must give all you are to this battle. And you will bleed. And you will give and receive many blows before you arrive face to face with Christ. And do not let the ferocity of your enemy and do not let the shock of the cost unnerve you. Prepare yourself. Amy Carmichael, as a missionary, experienced quite a few discouragements as she was trying to bring children out of the Hindu prostitution system. Little girls who were described as being devoted to the gods, but it really meant they were trained to be prostitutes for the Hindus. And she would rescue them from those temples. But many times, she, she's very honest in her biography, many times the girls would be taken back. And it really was unbearable to her. And she wrote this, There are things, there are, sorry, things are sure to happen which will drain the Christian heart of hope. But the hallmark of the true Christian is a refusal to be weakened or to be hardened, to become calloused or soured. Or made hopeless by disappointment. Then she wrote a poem. And if I ever thought of a tattoo, this is it, all right? If you want the poem, I can send it to you in an email. Just, um, just catch me after the service. Or I can send it to Merv and he can get it to you. Listen to this poem. It's one of my favorite that she wrote. What though I stand with the winners or perish with those who fall? Only the cowards are sinners. Fighting the fight is all. Strong is my foe who advances. Snapped is my blade, she says. Oh Lord, have you ever felt that way? That the foe is strong and at best you're like a soldier who's broken his own blade. Strong is the foe who advances. Snapped is my blade, O oh Lord. See their proud banners and lances. But... Spare me the stub of a sword. If all Christ will give me is a sword stub, I will battle on. Well, in closing, Christian, you will overcome. How? By pouring your life into the battle, but the provisions will be given from Christ. Go back to Ephesians 6. We don't have time. And look at those armor. Those are not your qualities. You become a righteous person, a breastplate of righteousness. You become a person who shares the gospel, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. You're, a really, you're, you know, you're really good with the sword of the spirit, etc., etc. The belt of truth, you're an honest person. That is a wrong way to view it. This is Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the armor of Christ. His righteousness. His gospel on your feet when they're sore. His sword in your hand, his faithfulness, and you grab hold of it by faith, his helmet of salvation, his truth around your waist. Put on Christ in his infinite supply. He is the treasurer of heaven, and he will give to you with both hands. He is the armorer of heaven, and I think we can say he is the armor itself. Grab hold of Christ throughout the day, both arms. Expect him to be all he says he is. 
And by his constant filling, put to death the enemies. Let's pray. Our our God, we thank you for the glorious truths, things that really, it just baffles our minds. We labor to get just the edge of the garment, but we see something of these things. We see the enemy. We see their proud banners and lances across our own land and in our soul and how they lie about our king. But captain of our salvation, give us the courage that we need and fill us with the supplies so that if all we have is a snapped blade, we will still rejoin you on the field of battle. Jesus, help for the glory of your name and the good of our souls, we ask. Amen.